Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Department of Homeland Security announces plans to lift Title 42, one of the last remaining deterrents to illegal immigration. A border expert says prepare for more record-breaking numbers of people at the southwest border. Russia is accusing Ukrainian forces of conducting an airstrike on Russian territory. This is the first time Ukraine has been accused of conducting an attack on Russian soil since the war started. The unemployment rate is nearing pre-pandemic lows, but business owners are struggling to hire qualified workers. The labor force added 430,000 new jobs in March. A group of senators aimed to counter Chinese Communist Party spying as high-profile espionage cases sound the alarm in the U.S. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says Disney has a lot of special privileges that are not justifiable. This comes amid Disney's opposition to Florida's recent parental rights law. The labor force has added more than 430,000 new jobs in March, while the unemployment rate fell to 3.6%, nearing pre-pandemic lows. America are back to work, and that's good news for millions of families who have a little more breathing room and the, and the dignity that comes from earning a paycheck, just the dignity of having a job. American employers have added at least 400,000 jobs for 11 straight months, and average hourly pay has climbed by over 5% over the past 12 months. But reports find small business owners are struggling to find qualified employees. Meanwhile, the country is still facing the highest inflation rate in 40 years and skyrocketing gas prices. But to try to lower those gas prices, President Biden said this morning over 30 countries are joining America to release more oil into the market. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is reportedly making a big career move. Psaki, who has served as press secretary since President Biden took office in January 2021, is expected to step down at the end of the month. Axios, which first broke the news, reported that she's in contract negotiations with cable news giant MSNBC. Saki will reportedly host a show for the network's streaming platform Peacock, as well as regular news shows. Saki and MSNBC have not commented on the reports. And in other White House news, Republican Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz announced this week that the Biden administration has fired him from a presidential council. Oz called it a political firing. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. Mehmet Oz, best known as the TV host of The Dr. Oz Show, received letters from the White House earlier this month asking him to resign or be terminated from the President's Council on Sports, Fitness and Nutrition. Oz was appointed to the Council in 2018 by former President Trump. According to a White House official, Oz, who's running as a Republican for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, was asked to resign because it's against the Biden administration's policy to have federal candidates serve on presidential boards. Oz refused to step down and announced Wednesday that he had been fired. In a statement released by his campaign, Oz said, This was a political firing because I'm calling out Biden's failures on inflation, immigration and COVID. Oz said the Biden administration told him he was fired because it is customary to replace the council with members who share the president's priorities. Another reason given by the White House was the 1939 Hatch Act, a law that bars public officials from using their position to engage in political activity. In a letter to President Biden, Oz wrote, I do not engage in campaign activity while acting as a council member. My involvement was purely toward advocating for health awareness and empowerment, the engine of my life and work. Last week, the Biden administration also called on former football star Herschel Walker, another celebrity Republican Senate candidate, to resign from the council or be fired. Walker, who's running for office in Georgia, was also appointed by Trump. Chenny Wu, NTD News. A group of senators is trying to stop the Chinese Communist Party from spying on Americans. This as high-profile espionage cases emerge and a major decision by the Biden administration comes under scrutiny. NTD's Iris Tao has more. 
countering espionage by Beijing. That's what Senator Rick Scott, along with five other Republican senators, say their latest legislation is trying to do. Of sending spies to our country to steal sensitive research and trade secrets. Following earlier discussions on China's threat, Senator Rick Scott on Thursday introduced the Protect America's Innovation and Economic Security from CCP Act. It aims to re-establish the China Initiative at the Department of Justice. The program, established in 2018, seeks to prevent spying by the Chinese Communist Party on American soil. What the Communist Party of China is doing is they want to control our lives. But the Biden administration ended the China Initiative in February, replacing it with what it called a broader strategy. But Senator Marco Rubio, a co-sponsor of the bill, calls it a foolish decision. He wrote on Thursday that it diverts resources from confronting the CCP, who he calls the single greatest threat to our national security. These efforts are really just the tip of the iceberg. The call comes amid heightened alert on the long arm of the Chinese regime. Just weeks ago, the DOJ charged five people with acting on behalf of Beijing to stalk, harass and spy on Chinese dissidents in the U.S., including a congressional candidate in New York. For decades, the Chinese Communist Party has targeted, harassed and threatened U.S.-based Tibetans, Uyghurs, Falun Gong members and pro-democracy activists. And now, as if that weren't offensive enough, the government of China has targeted the campaign of a candidate for Congress. And just earlier this week, the DOJ charged another man for acting as an unregistered agent for Beijing in the United States. He's accused of enlisting others, including a U.S. law enforcement officer, to spy on and blackmail targets here specified by the communist regime. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Several GOP lawmakers are demanding records of any communication between Hunter Biden and the White House, including both the Biden White House and the Obama White House. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee sent letters to the White House yesterday. They wrote, if the Russian government is attempting to influence American policy in Ukraine by exploiting Hunter Biden's connection with his father, the president of the United States, the American people deserve to know it. The Republicans are seeking documents and communications between the White House and members or associates of the Biden family from when Biden took office until now. House Oversight Republicans say they're also seeking all records between Obama administration officials and members or associates of Biden's family relating to Russia or Ukraine. The Department of Homeland Security has announced it will be lifting Title 42 on May 23rd. What does this mean for America's southern border? NTD's Jason Perry speaks with an immigration expert to find out. The Biden administration recognized that it was the only thing they had left that was keeping a, uh, some semblance of a border where it was not completely wide open and erased to the entire world. Title 42 is the Trump-era pandemic public health order that stopped many migrants from crossing the border and seeking asylum in the United States. Todd Benzman is a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies and the author of America's Covert Border War. He explains that President Biden carried over Title 42 into his presidency, but he made exceptions for family units and unaccompanied minors. With just the exemptions alone under Biden, we have the greatest mass migration in history by numbers in the United States with you know, 2.3 million. Uh, we're probably gonna have 200,000 that came over just in March alone, so. Now Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas announced that Title 42 will be going away on May 23rd. And according to the Washington Post, the Biden administration is getting ready for record numbers at the southern border. It's enlisting the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to prepare for as many as 18,000 migrants per day. They're looking at marshalling aircraft uh, and pilots so that they can move people from Con concentrations uh, along the border, they can, they can relieve the concentrations by flying people to other facilities around the country. Benzman explained one of the underlying reasons behind the record mass migration under the Biden administration. The administration's problem is that they are making the asylum system available to everybody. That's their problem. That's what causes this. 
And the asylum system is just massively abused. All you have to do is say, I declare asylum, I'm afraid to go home, and you're in. He says one way to solve the issue could be for the United States to get Panama, Costa Rica, and Colombia to shut down their borders, as they did during the pandemic. It helped then, and it could help stop the mass migration now. Jason Perry, NTD News. COVID-19's grip on the U.S. is shrinking. Just over 16,000 people are currently hospitalized with the virus, the lowest number since the start of the pandemic. That's according to the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. The HHS adds that COVID-19 patients in the ICU are decreasing as well. Despite the drop in these hospitalizations, officials say many hospitals are still stressed, partly because of staffing issues. The CDC says since August 2020, more than 4.5 million people have been hospitalized for COVID-19. More than a third of those patients were at least 70 years old. Since Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, which limits discussions about sexual orientation to grades 4 and up, Disney executives have called it anti-LGBTQ. Now, DeSantis says Disney has too many privileges in the state. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said in a press conference Thursday that Disney has a lot of special privileges that are not justifiable. This was in response to questioning about Disney's opposition to the parental rights education law. Disney say gay, we won't go away. Dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill because it prohibits discussing LGBT topics like sexual orientation or gender identity with students below the fourth grade. Since 1967, Disney has controlled an independent governing entity that gives it the power to levy taxes, build public services, and maintain roadways, among other privileges. DeSantis noted that because Disney executives have made dishonest statements about the law, the company has lost a lot of its influence, which he called a good thing for Florida. The state should be governed by the best interests of the people. You should not have one organization that is able to dictate policy um, in all these different realms. Meanwhile, a Disney manager, Jose Castillo, said Disney's stance on the law is bad for business. Their statement says this about the, the bill that Ron DeSantis passed. They said, our goal as a company is for the law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down by the courts. Castillo, who was running for Congress in the Republican primary, said the company's stance serves only to appease a small but very vocal group of raging liberal employees. If the Florida legislature revokes Disney's special privileges, Disney World and all of its properties would be regulated by Orange and Osceola counties in Central Florida. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. You're bound to have heard of critical race theory, but have you heard of social-emotional learning? Conservative parent and education groups are sounding the alarm over the curriculum. They say it's being used as a Trojan horse for not only CRT, but also gender theory and social justice. NTD's Grace Coulter brings us a special report. Over the last two years, social-emotional learning programs in U.S. schools have been rapidly increasing, and this trend is on track to continue. A new report released today by Research and Markets projects the global social and emotional learning market to hit over $7.6 billion by 2027. That's an increase of nearly 270% from $2.1 billion in 2021. But as parents nationwide continue to delve into their children's curriculum, pushback against a new form of SEL is growing. So what is SEL and why are so many parents against it? Social emotional learning was actually um, brought in to teach kids skills like empathy, perspective taking, uh, goal setting, how to manage their emotions and uh, make responsible decisions, etc. Um, but now it's kind of been hijacked. Lisa Logan is the social emotional learning advisor to Utah Parents United. Through extensive research, her organization discovered that comprehensive sex ed, CRT, gender theory and socialist principles are now being woven into SEL. Logan says what's being taught often conflicts with many families' values. Say that family only believes in two genders. Well, social emotional learning is going to teach them to have empathy, right, and perspective taking, but what they'll do is they'll twist that. 
In order to be empathetic, you have to be compassionate, which means you have to do something, um, i.e. social justice activism. And then for perspective taking, it's not just enough to acknowledge someone has different beliefs than you do and to respect them, but you actually have to accept their ideologies as truth. James Lindsay, author and leading expert on CRT, calls social emotional learning possibly the most important topic happening in education. In an episode of his podcast, The New Discourses, Lindsay said of SEL, Marxist educators have completely hijacked any legitimacy the program ever had and turned it into a Maoist nightmare to ruin your kids so they achieve their revolution. In 2020, Castle, which creates the standards for SEL in the United States, changed its definition and framework for SEL to transformative SEL. The organization says on its website that this form of SEL is aimed at redistributing power to more fully engage young people and adults in working toward just and equitable schools and communities. Castle further says that SEL serves as a lever for equity and social justice. In 2019, Castle held a seminar about how SEL can address issues such as privilege, power, race, social justice and community and help build a new system of schooling. So I leave you with one question, which is how can we leverage SEL to create the social change that we need? That is not a question for you to not just to ponder, but this is an action plan for you. As parents learn more about SEL, school districts are facing greater pressure to scrap the curriculum. In Idaho, social-emotional learning is off-limits in many districts due to outcry from parents and school board candidates. But some teachers are finding ways around this. Like this instructional coach from Idaho's Nampa School District, she was recently caught on undercover video by Accuracy in Media, discussing how her district is still teaching the curriculum by giving it new names. Emotional learning. We can't say that here anymore. It's mental health. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh my God. No, we did have a big. She already came for it. We already had a big blow up with that. So we still do. We just call it mental health. So it's just you know our mental health curriculum. We're just learning how to worm around all of those weird things that are out there. A staff member from Idaho's Cadwell School District was caught saying something similar. I just went to a superintendent's meeting last week, and the district was intentional to switch out uh, social-emotional learning to uh, behavior adaptations. Like they just hmm. changed the name? Changed the label, huh. same stuff. We contacted Nampa School District for comment, but they did not get back to us. Logan says with the language around the curriculum being changed to avoid detection, it's vital for parents to thoroughly educate themselves. This means learning about cultural Marxism in all its different forms. Logan says parents then need to share this knowledge with their children and help them understand their family values on a fundamental level. Grace Coulter, NTD News. Many January 6 defendants say they've been through a difficult time since the Capitol breach last year. One of them is Brandon Straka, founder of the Walkaway Movement. He spoke to NTD's The Nation Speaks about his ordeal while under house arrest. Here are the details. Brandon Strzok, founder of the Walkaway Movement, tells NTD what he's been through following the events of January 6, 2021. He says he stood on the steps of the Capitol building that day and filmed a video for about eight minutes without ever going into the building. But that got him in trouble. Two and a half weeks later, an FBI SWAT team came into my apartment at the crack of dawn, put me in handcuffs and presented me with a search warrant and took me to jail. And I spent several days in jail before I got out and found out that I was facing multiple felonies for being on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th. Strzok was charged with a felony of knowingly occupying restricted grounds, another felony of impeding an officer in the line of duty, and a misdemeanor of disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. In the plea deal, the Justice Department alleged that Strzok encouraged people to take a shield away from a Capitol police officer. Strzok denies he's done this, but took the plea deal. He explains why. I took a plea deal because it is my belief that no January 6th defendant will get a fair trial or a fair shot in front of a jury or a judge in Washington, D.C. It saddens me greatly to be so pessimistic, but my belief is that 
every person going to trial will be found guilty, and I believe that they will be punished severely. Strzok faces three months of house arrest, close to three years of probation, and a $5,000 fine for a Class B nonviolent misdemeanor. He explains that the prosecution for January 6th defendants has been different from typical cases. So typically in a plea deal, uh, the prosecution will kind of tip their hand at least a bit about what they're offering in terms of a sentencing recommendation. That is not happening in these capital riot cases. So it was a little bit like playing Russian roulette because the only comfort I guess that I got in my plea deal was knowing that the felony charges were being dropped, but they would not tell us what they were recommending for sentencing and they're not doing that with anybody. Strzok says the federal government also placed him on a terrorism watch list with the TSA in March 2021. Every time he flies, he has to go through hours of extra screening. Strzok says what he's been through hasn't shaken his convictions in his work, but it has definitely had an impact on his faith in the justice system and the Republican Party, who he feels have turned their back on the situation. You can catch the full interview on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker at 11 a.m. Saturday right here on NTD. And coming up, an unwritten law in New York that's fallen apart. It has to do with subway rights and the rising cost of pizza. And college basketball's biggest rivalry in their first ever Final Four meeting. A preview of the battles to get to the championship game. That and more on NTD News. Sorry to be such a downer on a Friday, but let's talk pizza. Apparently, pizza in New York City should never cost more than a subway ride. But it looks like that rule has been broken. NTD's Phil Zoe has what you need to know. Hey, have you heard of the pizza connection or the pizza principle? It's apparently an economic law in New York City that states the cost of a slice of pizza is the same cost for a single subway ride. But that might be changing. When a New York slice of pizza cost around $1 in the late 80s and early 90s, so did the cost of a single subway ride. When a slice went up to $2 in the 2000s, so did the subway fare. The cost of pizza did go up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In college, I was surviving on the dollar slices, and then they went to like a $1.50. I want to know why. Is it inflation? Right now, the average cost of a New York slice has gone up to over $3 across the city while the subway fare is staying at $2.75. At one of the highest-rated pizzerias in midtown Manhattan, New York Pizza Suprema, their famous slices used to be $4, but it went up to $4.50 about a year ago. Uh, yeah, sometimes it gets pretty crazy, but we usually uh, end up uh, not doing our thing and finish it on time. But that's not stopping pizza fans from lining up. Joe's Pizza is extremely decent. Dollar pizza is typically better than gourmet pizza. Max. Ingredients for pizza have been climbing over the years. Cheese is up 10% in the last three years. But pizza flour used for pizza dough has gone up the most, rising almost 12% in the past year alone. Some pizza shops, like this one, unfortunately, are no more. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. One of the most anticipated Final Fours in recent history is just 24 hours from tipping off. While a Kansas-Villanova matchup would normally be the main event, it takes a back seat to the first-ever Duke-Carolina Final Four meeting. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The storyline is right out of a Hollywood script. The most successful coach of his generation in his final season, two wins away from a title, one loss from retirement. Only his biggest rival stands in his way in their first ever NCAA tournament matchup at the Final Four, no less. The Titanic matchup would only be bigger had the Tar Heels been a top 10 team all season, like Duke. Instead, they were a top 25 afterthought that's come on of late, ruining Coach K's final home game. Can they send him into retirement as well? The Tar Heels have won 10 of their last 11 games but Duke has revenge on their minds after losing to them by 13 just a few weeks ago. The Kansas-Villanova matchup will mark the fifth time in seven seasons that these two have faced, and the Wildcats won three of the first four. Included in that was their 2018 Final Four win 
where they jumped out to a 22-4 lead and never looked back. But the Cats are without second-leading scorer Justin Moore, who tore his Achilles in the win over Houston. Kansas, meanwhile, has been thriving with a healthy Remy Martin rejuvenating their lineup. Martin had struggled with injuries since transferring to KU in the offseason. But now that he's healthy, his speed and shooting have been a difference maker. Look for KU to advance to play Duke Monday night for the title. Dave Martin, NTD News. The draw for the World Cup group stage has put the United States in the same group as England, Iran and possibly Ukraine. The fourth team in that group is between Wales, Scotland and Ukraine and won't be decided until their June playoff. The U.S. will open against that playoff winner on November 21st before meeting England and then Iran. The Americans lost to Germany in the quarterfinals back in 2002 and have yet to advance that far again, falling in the group stage in 2006 and then getting knocked out in the round of 16 in 2010 and 2014. The U.S. did not qualify in 2018. This year's World Cup will be played in Qatar in November and December as opposed to the normal June-July period in order to get away from the desert heat. And coming up, the two major ports in Southern California are implementing a charge on any trucks that use fossil fuel. Their goal is to use cleaner energy. But the change comes along with lingering supply chain trouble and higher than ever gas prices. Silicon Valley gets a fentanyl working group. Its job is to put a stop to the lethal overdose affecting families. That and more on NTD News. Southern California's two major ports will begin charging trucks to haul cargo in and out of their ports. The condition is whether or not the trucks run on fossil fuel. The new fee comes as the trucking industry is facing a range of difficulties. Here's more from NTD's Daniel Hall. Trucks picking up or dropping off cargo from the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach will now face extra charges if their engines run on fossil fuel. Each time when these trucks enter the port, they will now be charged $10 extra per 20-foot container, which is the standard measurement for containers. The fee is part of California's Clean Truck Fund Rate fee. The ports said that trucks that do not run on fossil fuel and use various forms of clean energy will not be charged. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia held a public kickoff on Friday for the new fee. Uh, we're really here to, uh, to celebrate and to kick off what is a first-of-its-kind program um, across the country. Our Clean Truck Fund will enable us here at our ports to convert our fleet to zero-emission trucks that will come in and out of the ports and then go, of course, as we know, across the nation. I believe we can have a strong economy and a safe environment. We can have the busiest port complex in the Western Hemisphere and clean our air. And we can keep breaking cargo records. It was great to see the trains going by. It's like, you know, ships, trains, and automobiles today. The ports have a goal to be serviced only by zero-emission trucks by 2035. The ports are offering $150,000 vouchers as incentives to licensed carriers when they purchase zero-emission trucks. The fanfare comes as ports continue struggling with surging deliveries and supply chain holdups. At the end of March, the Port of Los Angeles had just over 60,000 containers waiting at the terminal. Of those, 15,000 had been sitting there for more than nine days waiting to be transported. Just about the same number of empty containers, 59,000, were waiting to be shipped out of the port. The additional fees come as the trucking industry is facing labor shortages and record high fuel prices. The American Trucking Associations called on the federal government in March to find ways to increase domestic energy production to offset costs. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Officials in one northern California county introduced its new fentanyl working group to fight against the increase in overdoses. Authorities have warned dealers could be prosecuted for murder if people taking the drug die. NTD's David Lamb brings us the details. 
Drug-related deaths have been more common than not in certain communities. One drug, fentanyl, is a prescription painkiller, but can be 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin or morphine. It's been linked with numerous unintentional overdose. Today we're here because there's a fentanyl crisis in Santa Clara County. Fentanyl is causing a rising number of deaths, particularly among 18 to 25 year olds. Chavez said the county examiner reports that in 2019, there were 29 deaths from fentanyl, and that number increased to 135 deaths in 2021. She said there are already eight deaths this year. Because of the urgency, Santa Clara County has quickly established a fentanyl working group of experts to coordinate and increase the county's efforts to combat fentanyl. She said the group will also develop a social media campaign. Members include Supervisor Chavez herself, the county's district attorney, and several other experts or those who've been impacted by fentanyl. We also hope to implement a fentanyl advisement that warns fentanyl dealers about the dangers of fentanyl and that they could be prosecuted for murder if they do it again. We do all this for one reason and one reason only, to prevent as many families from suffering the loss of a loved one. One father said his son was a victim who was about to turn 18 years old. Linus had actually taken a pill uh, that he thought was a percocet, but it was actually laced and uh, it contained a little dose of uh, fentanyl. When we found him in his bed, um, it was actually already too late at that point. He said the paramedics couldn't do anything to save him. Another member said there's an issue of fentanyl being found in drugs on the streets used at parties and hopes to understand the dynamics of the younger generation. According to the county website, many drug dealers mix the much cheaper fentanyl into other drugs like heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, and meth to increase profits. Fentanyl has even been detected in cannabis in some parts of the U.S. The supervisor says the group will hold their first meeting on April 15th. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Coming up, the European Union and China are at odds over Ukraine during a virtual summit. Beijing says it will push for peace in its own way. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why. What's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Moving on to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Russia is accusing Ukraine of carrying out an airstrike against a fuel depot in the Russian city of Belgorod. This is the first accusation of a Ukrainian airstrike on Russian soil since Moscow launched its invasion in February. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. As seen in this video, workers attempt to put out a fire at a fuel depot in Belgorod, Russia, which is about 22 miles from the Ukrainian border. Russian officials have accused Ukraine of carrying out an airstrike against the facility, which is the first accusation of a Ukrainian airstrike on Russian soil since Moscow launched its invasion. At about 5 a.m. Moscow time on April 1st, two Ukrainian M124 helicopters entered the Russian Federation airspace at an extremely low altitude. The Ukrainian helicopters raided a civilian oil storage facility located in the outskirts of Belgorod with a missile strike. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry spokesman neither confirmed nor denied a Ukrainian role, saying... Ukraine is currently conducting a defensive operation against Russian aggression on the territory of Ukraine. And this does not mean that Ukraine is responsible for every catastrophe on Russia's territory. Meanwhile, Ukraine is accusing Russia of stopping innocent civilians from leaving the war-torn port city of Mariupol. The city council deputy explained. The situation is still catastrophic. Uh, in, uh, Russians uh, tell all the world that... Uh, they give the green corridor, but there are no real green corridor. Yes, 
they allow some people with their food or with their own cars to get out from the city or into the side of the Berdyansk. But um, our Ukrainian buses are only allowed to get into the Berdyansk. Ukrainian officials said Russian forces blocked a 45-bus convoy attempting to evacuate people from Mariupol, and only around 600 people were allowed to leave in private cars. There are still about 100,000 people who remain in the city of Mariupol, where Russia has focused its attacks. Jason Perry, NTD News. And today, the head of the United Nations nuclear watchdog says he'll lead a mission as soon as possible to Chernobyl, the site of the world's worst nuclear accident. That's after Russian troops were reported to have left the radioactive waste facilities there. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us the update. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, says that Russian forces' departure from the decommissioned Chernobyl nuclear power plant is a step in the right direction, and that the agency has drawn up concrete and detailed assistance plans for sites including Ukraine's four operating nuclear power plants and Chernobyl. I think that we are going to be moving um, to Chernobyl very, very soon. Grossi said radiation levels around the plant had been quite normal, but there may have been a spike when heavy vehicles were moved in and out of the area. We heard about the possibility of some personnel being contaminated, but we don't have any confirmation about that. He said Russian nuclear and foreign ministry officials didn't discuss with him why Russian forces left Chernobyl during his visit to the country. The explosion of one of Chernobyl's nuclear reactors in 1986 was the worst nuclear accident in history, contaminating swaths of the surrounding area with deadly radiation. Ukraine's state nuclear company on Thursday confirmed that Russian troops had dug trenches in the most radioactively contaminated area around Chernobyl, suggesting that concerns over radiation had driven the Russians away. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last month, Grossi has called on both countries to agree on a framework to ensure nuclear facilities, including radioactive waste facilities, are safe and secure. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The Chinese premier told EU leaders during a virtual summit that Beijing would push for peace in Ukraine in its own way. The EU has raised the possibility of penalties against Chinese companies that undermine measures taken against Russia. But both sides agreed the war in Ukraine is threatening global security and the world economy. Here's more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. EU and Chinese leaders met for the first summit in two years on Friday. Brussels pressed Beijing for assurances that it will neither supply Russia with arms nor help Moscow circumvent Western sanctions imposed over its invasion of Ukraine. The presidents of the European Commission and European Council, Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, along with EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, held talks with Chinese Premier Li Keqiang and leader Xi Jinping. China renewed its criticism of Western sanctions against Russia. The Chinese Premier told EU leaders that Beijing would push for peace in its own way in Ukraine. And Xi said he hoped the European Union can form its view of China independently. China has voiced concerns that European countries are taking hard-line foreign policy cues from the US. Beijing says it's not taking sides in the conflict, but it has declared a no-limits partnership with Russia and refuses to condemn the invasion. The EU has raised the possibility of penalties against Chinese companies that undermine measures taken against Russia. Over a quarter of China's global trade was with the bloc and the US last year, against less than 3% with Russia. China-EU relations were already strained before the Ukraine war. An investment agreement is on hold after Brussels' sanctions against Chinese officials over human rights abuses in the Xinjiang region prompted Beijing to blacklist EU individuals and entities. The European Union and China agreed that the war in Ukraine was threatening global security, Michel said after the talks. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Western leaders should break the alliance between Russia and China. This according to a French professor who says China is becoming a more serious threat if it's backed by Russia. On the other hand, he says the Chinese Communist Party is taking advantage of Washington and Brussels being busy with the Ukraine crisis. 
And TD's France correspondent David Vivas has this report. What if an alliance between China and Russia could manage to accomplish what no country could do on its own, which is to seriously challenge the U.S. and its allies? Russian President Vladimir Putin is asking so-called unfriendly countries to pay for energy in rubles. China and Russia are pushing the use of cryptocurrency payments. Both of these developments could weaken the U.S. dollar. iNews reported that the two countries might seek to build a new financial world order, while the U.S. dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency. Earlier this week, the Russian and Chinese foreign ministers met in China, where they agreed to expand cooperation. French professor Olivier Tournafon says Russia's support to the Chinese regime poses a serious threat. China is much more dangerous to us in the West than Russia is, because Russia has no intention of becoming master of the world, whereas China has a global agenda. The Chinese Communist Party must not be allowed to ally itself with Russia to form a kind of anti-Western bloc that could win. China abstained in the UN General Assembly vote early March that demanded Russia unconditionally withdraw from Ukraine, and it has refused to condemn the Russian invasion. Some experts point out that Beijing could benefit from the Ukraine war by not taking sides and continuing to trade with Putin. Meanwhile, Beijing is careful not to upset Brussels, as a trade agreement between Beijing and the EU is still at stake. Publishers Mathieu Servens points to an article published by Chinese outlet DW News. Indeed, according to the website DW News, Putin offered the third gift from heaven to China in its recent history. As defined by the newspaper, the first gift from heaven was 9-11, the second, the COVID crisis. In other words, tackling the pandemic or fighting the war against terrorism has distracted the U.S. administration's attention away from China. After 9-11, fighting terrorism was a priority for the Bush administration, which turned away from China. As for former U.S. President Trump, he had taken numerous protectionist measures that had hurt the Chinese regime. September 11th and the COVID crisis created what Chinese strategists call a window of opportunity because China no longer had a target on its back. Sylvain says that the Chinese regime studies the different scenarios that would allow it to be on the winning side. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Let's turn now to Beijing's controversial one-child policy. We'll hear from Reggie Littlejohn, president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. She sheds light on the stories of those who'd lived through the policy firsthand. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following disturbing. 400 million baby boys and girls. That's more than the entire U.S. population. But these babies never saw the light of day. They were aborted under the Chinese Communist regime's one-child policy. Some killed right after birth. The policy was introduced in 1980 and was active for decades after. This was in the mid-90s that um, the one-child policy was not voluntary, which is what the propaganda department was putting out, but was actually very brutally and coercively enforced. Reggie Littlejohn is the founder and president of an international coalition called Women's Rights Without Frontiers. The organization strives to expose and oppose forced abortion, gendercide, and sexual slavery in China. Reggie Littlejohn is an attorney. After graduating from Yale, she began representing refugees who were seeking asylum in the U.S. She says one case really stood out to her. One of them was forcibly sterilized, uh, so meaning that she was picked up and dragged out of her home, screaming and crying, held onto uh, a, a bed, and... For, and sterilized without anesthesia. So she just, she said that this was unbelievably painful, like somebody holding a, you know, a fire hose inside of her. The woman ended up with permanent migraines, back pain, and abdominal pain, conditions she'll endure for the rest of her life. She's one of countless women that suffered the same fate. Through her YouTube channel, Little John describes another case she witnessed. One case that I'll never forget is of a young woman who was seven months pregnant without a birth permit. So that would be an illegal pregnancy. Who was walking down the street and she was grabbed by family planning cadres, dragged off the street, strapped down to a table, forced to abort 
the baby that she very desperately wanted. And after and the, the tragic procedure was over, one of the medical personnel came to her with the body of her aborted baby and said, you need to pay for this so that we can dispose of the body. And she said she didn't have any money, so they just laid that body right next to her in the bed. And I've got a photograph of her looking down and just grieving the loss of this seven-month-old baby that was forcibly aborted. China has put limits on family size since the Chinese Communist Party took the power in 1949, long before the one-child policy took effect. And even though the controversial policy ended in 2016, the consequences are still felt today. For one, it's led to major imbalance in the population. China has a far greater number of males than females. That problem is rooted in another issue, gender side. That's when families prefer baby boys over baby girls, largely because sons will take on the responsibility of caring for their parents later in life, while daughters will instead marry and join other families. The one-child policy compounded that situation, especially in rural areas. There, some families will abort baby girls, multiple times in some cases, until they get a boy. But Women's Rights Without Frontiers is working to fight that with a project called the Save a Girl Campaign. It's already saved over 100 baby girls in China. Little John shared a story about how her team managed to save two twin daughters. She explains that the pregnant mother avoided getting an ultrasound until she was very far along because she knew her mother-in-law would force her to abort the baby if it was a girl. When she finally did get the ultrasound, she found out she was carrying not one, but two baby girls. Fortunately, uh, one of our field workers found out about her, came to her door, said, um, congratulations on your twin daughters. Girls are as good as boys, and we will give you two monthly stipends for a year to empower you to keep your daughters. So with that encouragement and with the, um, the money, this $50 a month, she was able to go back to her husband and her mother-in-law and say, look, I can't abort. I can't abandon these baby girls. They're lucky girls. Look, they're already bringing money into the family. And the girls were born. And now, of course, everybody's in love with them. The twins are among the lucky few. While it's difficult to get firm data on the subject, academics say there are now between 30 to 60 million missing girls in China, all of them either aborted or killed right after birth. But the gender imbalance has triggered another severe problem, human trafficking. So there are about 30 to 40 million men without wives. And this is the engine that is driving human trafficking and sexual slavery throughout China and, by, and also from the surrounding countries. And it's impossible to get a number for that because all of this is done with the greatest secrecy. Part of the issue is the way the legal system is set up. Under Chinese law, buying a trafficked woman will land you in jail for a maximum of three years. Buying a panda, on the other hand, leads to a far steeper sentence, 10 years behind bars. A related case sparked outrage on Chinese social media earlier this year, when a mother of eight was found chained to a wall. Video surfaced of the woman locked in a shabby shed in a village in northwestern China, where she had been held for decades. She's suspected to be an example of bride trafficking, another result of the one-child policy. The chained woman's case caught huge attention in China and abroad, but even the strong wave of public opinion couldn't change her fate. Shortly after she was transferred to a local mental hospital, her whereabouts became a mystery to the public. But it's not just the unborn and young facing the after-effects of the one-child policy. And we're also saving abandoned widows that I call um, sort of the, uns the unsung or secret victims of the one-child policy. And people don't think about how the one-child policy is affecting widows, but traditionally they were supported by a, a large family and they don't have a family to support them. So they are very, um, they are impoverished, they are abandoned, and a lot of them are committing suicide. While the consequences of the one-child policy continue to take their toll, reports say one player actually benefited the Chinese regime. According to a BBC News report, as of October 2015, the communist regime had collected over $300 billion in extra child fines. 
The penalties made up some of the punishments inflicted on parents who had more than one child. But despite the policy's continued impacts, there is hope. Little John says the Women's Rights Without Frontiers Coalition is making a major impact. We're the only organization in the world that actually has boots on the ground inside of China that is actively helping save baby girls from sex selective abortion, abandonment, and even just grinding poverty, uh, which is endemic in the Chinese countryside, especially given um, the coronavirus lockdowns. And those efforts aren't slowing down. Coming up, a magnetic slime robot created by scientists in Hong Kong. What will it be used for? Find out after the break. Finally, scientists have created a slimy magnetic robot that resembles a living organism. And they say it's not an April Fool's prank. Let's take a look. Okay, this is kind of gross. Scientists have created a magnetic slime robot that can stretch and squeeze into tight spaces. Oh, and in case you're wondering, this is not an April Fool's joke. That is according to a co-creator of this bizarre bionic booger, which was engineered at the University of Hong Kong. The slime has what one researcher called viscoelastic properties, making it stretchy and gooey, but also contains magnetic particles that not only can be controlled with external magnets, but also can conduct electricity, handy for circuit repair. Scientists also foresee potential biomedical uses, like reducing the harm if a child swallows a small battery, for example. But no one will be gulping down this freaky, flubber-esque goop quite yet. More research is needed to make sure all the secrets of the ooze are safe for humans. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.